Thank you for downloading The Jewish Story. All seasons of this podcast series are available for download when you visit elmod.pardes.org. Rav Mike Foyer is creating a Wondering Jewish History podcast. And if you want to learn more about this, including how to join his Patreon page, please visit elmod.pardes.org slash ravmike. Hope, says Herman Melville, is the struggle of the soul, breaking loose from what is perishable and attesting to her eternity. Well, I'm always reaching a little bit for eternity because I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Interlude, talking about the disengagement with Daniela Levy. So I hope you all know that 15 years ago, beginning in August 2005, the Israeli government uprooted 21 settlements from the Gaza Strip, and in the following month, four more from the northern Shamron, that's mountains of Samaria. And through the displacement of these 8,000 people, the Gaza Strip became Jew-free. The army was withdrawn, right? The Arab population was now free from the Israeli presence, and a settlement effort that had its most modern roots in the 1920s was completely brought to an end. It was the disengagement. And I can say that for me personally, it was a turning point in many ways that maybe we'll get into in this discussion. Um, and some would say even the turning point for the nation, although that's a question that we'll have to keep live in the air as well. And here to speak with me about the topic is author, mother, resident of the settlements herself, Daniela Levy, who's just recently written a book called, if I'm not mistaken, Disengagement, Leaving Home, Finding Home, and Encounters Along the Way. Hi, Daniela. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? So, you ready to have a little discussion about your book? Sure. Um, first of all, how did you become a writer? Before we even get to the book, I, I tell you, I have had the privilege of writing, co-authoring a couple of books, and, and it's a great relief to me that somebody else is driving the bus. I think of myself as a creative midwife. He's doing the hard work, and I'm just kind of coaxing things along. So, I'm, I'm in awe. I looked at your website. You've got a couple of other books there, Letters to Yosef, and... Um, uh, Hidden Light, wait, by the Hidden Light of the Candles? By Light of Hidden Candles. Thank you, by Light of Hidden Candles. It looks very exciting, particularly the uh, By Light of Hidden Candles. I'm looking forward to reading after having read this. So just tell me a little bit about your journey. How did you become a writer? Well, I became a writer, I think, when I picked up a pen and started writing when I was about four, actually. Really? Uh, yes, I taught myself to read and write when I was around that age. And I've just, it's just a thing I've always done. Um, I think it became sort of more a thing that I do as part of my identity. Like if you would ask me, um, you, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know if I would have said like when I was six or seven that I would be a writer, but mm -hmm. I was definitely saying it at around nine or 10. Wow. And I think that a part of what made me, um, become a writer was, um, the way that I dealt with Aliyah when I immigrated to Israel around that age, 9, 10. Ah, you, you came here at such a young age. Yes, exactly. Parents moved from where? From Pittsburgh. From Pittsburgh. And yeah. it, just you? You had siblings? Yeah, I had siblings. Uh, I had an older sister and two younger brothers. Wow. Um, I gotta say, I'm always in all families that make Aliyah. Having come here on my own with literally like a backpack and a duffel bag, I have not only awe, but, but trepidation and no comprehension of how anybody could actually move the family of young kids. Wow. So how was that for you? You said that that's kind of when writing became part of your identity. 
Yes, it was it was very difficult. Uh, I think it's difficult for everyone. It's it's a bit of a trauma for everyone who goes through Aliyah. Um, because it, it doesn't matter what age, because it's it's a major shift in you know it's it's immigration. It's moving from the place that you've known forever, the place that is home, to another place that is also home, but in very different ways. Yeah, it's um, an uprooting. It's an uprooting, exactly. And um, I think that I used writing to help me cope with it. I had a journal at the time, which I still have. And, uh, and I started writing stories around that time also. I wrote my first sort of chapter book when I was 10. Um, and I wrote my first novel between the ages of 12 and 14. So as a, as a teenager, I was just writing novels a lot. So this is really what we would call a tchunat nefesh. Like this is just something that welled up inside you. And then you pursued, did you pursue, uh, I mean, education, professional training, or is this just something you've done all on your own? Yeah, no, it was, it was completely on my own. I'm kind of, I'm kind of an autodidact. I prefer to, to learn myself. Um, I think this is also a big part of it. Um, you know, my, my English language education basically ended when I made Aliyah. It's so interesting. Because I have to tell you that aside from the topic, which we'll get to, don't worry, um, I really enjoyed the writing. And that I was, I, I mean, I'm with no aspersions, I wasn't expecting that. I thought the topic was going to be interesting to me. I actually am a bit of a critic when it comes to writing, in all honesty. And I thought it flowed very well. It was deeply engaging. So it's fascinating to me that someone who left the English educational system before you were 10 um, has maintained such a mastery of the language. It's, a, it's an impressive feat. So, but, you know, I actually... Um, I'm very curious about the next phase, because when I was looking at the author's note, you noted that you were in high school right. when the disengagement uh, sort of, what's a verb, when the disengagement came about, when we disengage, I guess it's a verb itself, that's the problem there. And aside from feeling extremely old, I just want to say <laughs> when I read that, because I was in my young 30s um, and was uh, climbing through drain pipes with a friend of mine with the determination to stop it and maybe we'll get to a bit of that story later it's my own dramatic traumatic experience but um i mean high school is very young for such an experience that you're now 15 years later right actually putting on print what was your impetus to actually write this book well it was a long process when I was, um, as you said, the disengagement happened, it was at, right after I graduated high school, actually. It was the summer after I graduated. Mm -hmm. So I was in high school for all the drama that happened before. Oh, and it was dramatic. It was very dramatic, but I was a little bit removed from it because, you know, my, my family was not that involved kind of with the settler movement. They were kind of less... Um, Where were you living? In Rehobo. Um, and we, you know, our, our community was maybe a little more American, a little more modern. Like we, we didn't really identify that deeply with the, with the strong Datilu Mi, um, you know, settlers. Yeah. I think my mom was a little bit more and, and, uh, she also, my, my parents kind of had different opinions on it. My, my dad was pro disengagement and my mom was anti um, wait, wait, pause for a second, because that's like a microcosm of the country at the time, as I'm sure you yeah. recall. That it was, it was like, it was fierce in the streets. I lost friends. I had a, I had a, I had a dear friend who we managed to maintain our relationship by basically not speaking about it. He was working in Sharon's office 
on the process of the disengagement while I was trying to figure out how to get to Syracuse with theme and, uh, and make it stop. So yeah, that's a, there was a whole, I mean, if our listeners aren't familiar, um, the drama leading up was, was a, a national sort of ferment. Although I have to say my experience was the aftermath was kind of silence. Yeah. But we'll get to that. So I was I asked you what was your sort of moved you to write the book. So you were post high school, you were in this environment which wasn't sort of strongly ideologically motivated, but nonetheless, even within your family, there was a sense of conflict of is this the right thing? Yes, to do or not? there was conflict, but it wasn't. I didn't feel like it was emotional. I didn't feel like my parents were really fighting about it. It was just mm-hmm. sort of you know my mom. My mom hung the orange ribbon on her car. My dad hung the blue and white ribbon, and and that was fine. Um, you know, I didn't really hear them arguing about it. Um, and I think I, if you had asked me at the time, I would have said that I was anti, um, and, you know, identified more strongly with the, with the settler movement and the me kind of perspective. Um, but I was always a little bit ambivalent. I, ne- I never felt like I fully belonged in that group. Mm. And I mean, I think also just making Aliyah also as a child, um, it makes you kind of not feel like you're ever really part of anything and fully part of a group. <laughs> yeah, because, we will be immigrants to the day we die. Yes, but particularly like to, to other Americans who live here, I'm an Israeli because I'm uh, right. here. Sure. But, to, but to Israelis, I'm American because I wasn't born here. Right. So for every group, I'm a little bit removed in some way. That actually, that actually leads me to my next question, although I didn't answer the first, but I, um, I'll put it out on the board, and get, which I'm fascinated by your choice to write a book from so many different perspectives, which I think I'm already sensing part of your answer there. But wait, I'm, I'm jumping the gun. So, what, so, okay, here you are, post-high school. It's 15 years ago. You said it was a long process. Where has the book been since then? Well, what happened was that at the time, and when the disengagement was happening, I was completely withdrawn. I did not want to see anything. I did not want to watch any of the news. I did not want to see any of it. I just felt mm-hmm. it was too painful for me. I couldn't take it. It was so And bad. it was. And I, the, just the emotion and the drama, I just I, I felt like I, I couldn't handle it. And I spent those days like locked up in my ivory tower on the top floor of my parents' house, um, just not watching anything. Mm-hmm. And... What happened was about a year later, I sort of decided maybe I'll write a short story based on kind of ideas and impressions I'd heard about the disengagement. Um, and it was the story of a, uh, a young a soldier, a female soldier who has to evacuate a widow. Hmm. Um, and I which, kind of heard it. Which took a role in the book eventually. Yes, it did end up in, in the book. It, what's interesting is that it, I feel like it's not really at the heart of the book, necessarily. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, I hear yeah. that. But, but that's sort of the spark where it started. And um, I, I didn't really do any research for it um, when I wrote that story. And I kind of, I liked it, but I kind of put it aside. And then just many years later, um, I was, I think it was after maybe even after the publication of By Light of Hidden Candles, I was kind of working on short stories, mm-hmm. um, you know, just sort of working on the craft of short fiction. And 
And I remembered, oh yeah, I had this story that I liked and I kind of dug it up and I thought, you know what, I should rewrite this, but based on research this time. Uh, and you know, at the time I'm, I'm an adult, I'm a mother, I, I, I live in a settlement. And I said, you know what, I think I'm ready to watch all that footage I didn't see at the time. So I sat down and watched on YouTube for three consecutive hours. And when I was done and I wiped the tears off my face, um, I said, I, I can't write this, I can't write this story because I don't, I, I just feel so many voices inside me that are conflicting. And I feel like if I write just this one story from this one perspective, it's, it, it's not gonna represent how I really feel about this event. That's so important because what I heard you say is it's not going to represent how you feel as opposed to any thought that you would represent how it actually happened. So really the, the inspiration for the work was um, an inner dialogue. Yes. That something that you wanted to work out within yourself as opposed to a desire to present um, sort of like a journalistic view of what right. was a very complex event. And that from the outside, I've heard arguments for, I've heard arguments against. Of course, now 15 years later, everybody, you know, we're not allowed to say 2020 hindsight anymore, are we? Everyone's got a different perspective, you know. Um, um, so let's come to this because I'm, I'm very interested. I mean, first of all, just as a reader, it was very enjoyable to, to move through these perspectives. But I'm, I'm curious for you, why was it so important to include so many perspectives? And I, I had the urge to ask why you ended with the one that you ended, but I'm not always a spoiler. So we're gonna say, folks, if you wanna know how the book ends, you gotta read it. I'm just gonna say that now and resist my desire. Um, but, but not only why did you include so many perspectives, did you feel that any are lacking? I mean, I know as a, as a creative person myself, as once something's done, or as you know, Winston Churchill, to paraphrase you, like you slave and beast and you feed it to the crowd, there's always a sense like, oh, but, oh, but I could have, so not only why so many perspectives, do you feel that anything were lacking? So one of so many perspectives, I I think was where I was where I was going with it before, which was that I realized that I didn't have to stick to one perspective. I could write from all the different perspectives that were coming up in me, and and I had the idea, well, maybe I can write it from the perspective of all sorts of different people who experience the disengagement, and and maybe that can sort of portray it in a way that I think is more whole. Mm. Um, and so I, I kind of made a list of in perspectives I thought would be interesting, not just in and of themselves, but also in contrast with each other. Mm -hmm. And I started writing sort of short stories based on, on those ideas. And eventually it, it developed into the novel it is now. I can't actually answer the question that you're, that you don't want to ask, which is that I wanted to end, um, on a note of tentative hope. Tentative. Give more details, yes. No, let's, let's not. No, it's really, it's really not. And I've had to resist for an entire week telling my wife, who I made her swear, even though she's one of these people, maybe I shouldn't reveal this, she's one of these people that reads the ends of books before she, <laughs> you know, like I said, I said, you cannot, so you cannot do it. It'll, it'll ruin the whole thing. Um, so, so, I mean, the, the, the book is fascinating to me. Your experience is, it's interesting to me too, that you were, you were sort of removed. And so that um, in many ways, this is a, a revisiting, or as you said, sort of an opening up of the, the trauma. I think that the, it's fair to call, as you said, you know, watching three hours of YouTube videos, the tears 
are hard to avoid. We were speaking before we started the show um, about this very strange role that the disengagement has come to take. Because, of course, um, if people aren't familiar, the timing of the disengagement from the arc of the Jewish calendar is all but prophetic. I mean, it, it was actually began the day after Tisha B'Av, the night of Av, when we, when we mourn the historic tragedies, not only of the sin of the spies in the desert, but destruction of the first and second temple and sort of so many other tragic events through history. Um, I myself remember having been summarily escorted out of the region by the police, um, coming home and sitting in the shul and watching grown men cry. Right? I'll never forget that when they opened the ark for Avinu Malkeinu. And now these are men who, like in all fairness, I always thought it was the Alta Cocker shul. Like there's a bunch of guys that like they've been dominating together for a couple of decades and nothing ever moves them, right? They are weeping crying out to God, because um, they also happened to have been, many of them, core members of the settlement movement. And this was a breaking. It was a breaking, and I want to come to that, but, but what we were speaking about is that for these 100, 150 men and, and their immediate circle, this is an event which belongs to Tisha B'Av. Right. It belongs to that litany of historical memory. And yet, for the vast majority of Israelis, and I would say even for world Jewry, it's all but forgotten. Yes. So, so do you feel that as an author, you have a, a, a task, a responsibility to evoke that memory? How do you want this book to impact people? I think that it's a shame that that, that is happening on both sides. I think that sort of delegating it as a a, a, a ritual, something that is only part, that, that is fully part of religious observance and something that is, you know, just about Tisha B'Av and you put it together with the destruction of the temple. These are things that, that the secular world does not identify with at all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and on the secular side or on the left-wing side or, or U.S. Jewry, um, it's not really thought about at all. And I think that it's, that that's a shame because there's a lot we can learn about where we are now in life and in politics from what happened then. Mm-hmm. What, what? The fact that it was such a trauma, I think, was, it was not just that something terrible was happening, it was the fracture within the people. And the fact that people had such a hard time really understanding each other and listening to each other it was it was very very polarized and i remember there being talk about civil war and are we ever going to recover from this are we ever going to be united again uh, listen I, i'll tell you that, that it, it's important that if people didn't experience it to recognize that the polarization was not incidental it was actually a tactic it was part yes. of the process of preparing the nation to do something that that um, was shocking, to say the least. I will never forget listening to the radio um, in the weeks leading up to the actual event of the uprooting. Um, and they were, you know, there was an effort to get people to leave beforehand. Right. Which was, which was as you know in the book, um, itself quite controversial. Because, of course, you know, there is a, there's this idea of, of mamin bezorea, which was actually a... Um, which is you believe and you plant, right? That, that, which was actually a movement. I actually gave money to, for farmers who couldn't get loans from the banks anymore because, of course, the banks said, folks, 
you're not going to be there next harvest. And they said, of course we are. It's never going to happen. And, you know, um, and we'll get to the question of some of the characters and who we identify with shortly. But this, on one hand, this attitude that it'll never happen. I don't have to prepare. And, and not only do I not have to prepare, but to prepare itself is to undermine the faith-based approach which says God won't allow this to happen. And then the other side is the sort of more secular left-wing view and centrist. It shouldn't just paint it as left, saying, folks, wake up, smell the coffee. It's a failed right. project. So my friend Yoni, who worked in Sharon's office at the time, said, if you had managed to put 200,000 people there, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But you put eight, and that is not enough to justify what's happening. But I, the, I just want to give you this image. I remember in terms of the polarization and the, and the trauma, when, when it was clear that most people weren't leaving, none of that, but many people flooded in, they tried to get the residents to send their children out. Right? Send your children out. You shouldn't use your children as a tool in war. But the woman's response to the interview was like, Jewish children have always been the front line of everything that we've done. And then she laid into this guy. She said, when they moved the zoo in Haifa, they took two years to study the potential impact on the animals, to create an environment where after they were moved from one place to the other, they would, they would be able to find the, sort of their balance, etc. She's like, you in the course of six months, you want to uproot my family and toss us on the street and I saw with my own eyes, my own eyes, I saw people wandering the streets of Beersheba with nowhere to go. And you could say that was their fault because they didn't take the compensation. But there was a wanton cruelty, cruelty, sorry, that was part of that um, polarization, which was met by, I would say, a wanton blindness of faith. And that, you're correct, it was a, it was a miracle and a testimony to the love of the people who lost their homes that there wasn't any real violence. So um, now that I'm just feeling moved and my memories are flooding in, who do you most identify with in the book and why? Most identify with? That's a really interesting question. I think- Because they all came from you. They, right, they all came from me on some level and they're, they're really important conflicts are things that came out of me. So it's hard to answer. I think that um, in terms of the external circumstances, um, probably the perspective that is closest to my experience would be Ruben, the, the Ole of the States, though maybe not even him, but maybe his son, mm -hmm. who I completely did not notice when I chose the name Daniel, that my it's name the, is Daniela. Right, right, it's the, it's the <laughs> masculine version of your name. And I now, yeah. I now understand that that's a, an echo of your own experience as an immigrant. Yes, it is. I think it's interesting to note that even though there were some stories that were told from the perspective of a child, I chose to write that one from the perspective of a parent, which I think also reflects kind of my own arc and where I am now sure. in life, looking at these events and looking at how they affected me and how they affected. Okay, so I'll try another angle. Which voice moved you most as you wrote it? I think I would say Talia. Hmm. who is the wither, widowed mother of five uh, whose husband dies in a, uh, a mortar attack. Yes. It's, it's, and, and it's a certain thread that runs through in many ways from beginning to end. Right. Um, and why? Because her chapter, it's just one chapter that's from her perspective. There was something so raw about it that I feel 
because sometimes when I'm writing fiction, there there are kind of layers on top. You know, I'm I'm I am writing as as a human, identifying with other humans, but sometimes I feel like the veil is a little more thin, mm. and I felt like in that story. I was reaching into my deepest, darkest struggles and bringing that onto the page. Yeah, the rawness of it was very powerful. I tell there were times I was angry. There were times when I had tears. And it, it made me think about what you referenced before, how, how um, for people in, in my world, in the, in the national religious world, in the settlement world, um, that the disengagement has so easily become part of this Tisha B'Av narrative. And for me, I can say that, um, you know, the Arizal says that the goal on Tisha B'Av is that you should just cry one tear over the brokenness of the world, right? And, and you know, uh, I find, in all honesty, the um, liturgical poetry, the keynote that we say, aside from the fact that, you know, sort of they're hard to understand, it's a, they're not so moving to me. And even I admit that um, accessing the stories of the Holocaust, which is a little bit nearer, has become more difficult for me to really be moved by. But I could put on a YouTube video and watch them knocking down the synagogues. Or they didn't knock down the synagogues. Knocking down the, the homes of the synagogues burning afterwards, which is an image that I wish I could erase from my mind. And I'll be crying in moments. And it's that, that rawness that I think is actually a very important contribution, if I can say such a thing, and why I, I, I'm saddened by the fact that it's become, as you said before we started the show, either ritualized, or sort of forgotten. Like, I, I really don't think that American Jewry, and I'm curious if folks are listening right now and they want to say, no, 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 it matters to American Jewry. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear, where does it exist? How does it reside? Because from a political perspective, let's not forget, of course, that um, the disengagement happened in 2005. The war in Lebanon, which I would argue was supercharged by the fact that, that uh, Hamas had now demonstrated conclusively that if you fought hard enough and long enough, the Jews would back off. I don't want to say give up, because that's, that's a little bit too strong a term, but we certainly would back down, mm-hmm. which then happened in Lebanon in 2006. And then we were back in, in Gaza. I think it was 2008 might have been the first round. Yeah. Um, I think three years. I think three years. And, and for me, this, those three years were a revolution, because I most identify um, with Yossi in your, in your story, the young teenage boy, the son of the rabbi, who starts off in the place of Hayolo Tiyeh. Like, it'll never happen. We've been promised. And then there's a very powerful scene in the book on Tisha B'Av itself, where, where after Mincha, after the noonday prayer, right, where there's a turning toward redemption, which, is, which is, I thought was a, a really powerful piece from the traditional perspective that you wove so nicely into the narrative. Um, and I know that feeling. And I, now, thank God, I, I um, managed to reconstruct my faith. And I, I, that sounds a little bit melodramatic, but I, I would not um, put it this way. I have never really regained the same faith in rabbis or the religious establishment of the people that were telling me. And I was 31 years old, mind you. I was not a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know many people who were children who have not, have not managed to reconstruct. But that, th- that rawness and the demand it makes upon us not to be apathetic to the world. Pro or con, I mean, even if people thought it was a good idea and they still think it's a good idea, et cetera, et cetera, you can't relegate this to the past because its consequences in politics are still present. And of course, it's a reality for many people. We spent, we have spent the last 15 years in pretty close contact with a couple of families 
who uh, are refugees in their own land, mm-hmm. right? And as much as people like to say, you know, all this money was given to them, et cetera, et cetera. Look, it's true, and, and it's better than being refugees from Poland. I'm not, uh, not but it, it doesn't change. Even as you said yourself in the beginning, every uprooting is traumatic. Yes. Um, and, and having served the nation and then having been served so poorly, in my humble opinion, by it, um, is a hard combination. So um, we hit my next question already, which is what the connection to the ninth of Av. Um, what, do you, what, what do you want people to take from the book? What would you feel? I, I mean, I think message is a little bit too, uh, too uh, you know, specific, but what, what, is it, what is it that you hope that readers will take from the book? Well, I think it really does tie into Tisha B'Av in the sense that on Tisha B'Av we are focusing on the role of love and hate within Am Yisrael mm-hmm. um, and what it means to be one as a nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I would really like people to take from the book is just sort of the ability to to inhabit other people's perspectives mm. and to really listen to each other's stories. And you feel that the ability to inhabit other's perspectives and listen to each other's stories uh, will do? They can help you. I, I think it can create a different reality. Mm. I think that if people had thought about it that way, both on the left and on the right during the disengagement. I don't know if the outcome would have been different, but I think the experience of it and the trauma of it might have been different. You know, I saw a Facebook post from someone who will remain nameless. I saw it this morning, because you know, this is, we're returning to this now as Tisha B'Av approaches later in the week. Uh, and if people think in the secular calendar, so August is just around the corner. And when the person said, looking back, and there was an image of something you described in the book, which is that human chain that went from the Kota all the way to Kisufim, uh, to, the, to the entrance to Kush Ketif. Um, and he said that, you know, looking back, what I could have done was have more empathy and sympathy. And I got to tell you, it made me so angry. Why didn't you have that then? Yeah, yeah. Part of it was I didn't even go into the concept, but it made me so angry to think that that um, that at this stage of our history, at this stage of our person, I know this person. It's this stage of personal development that that we still allow our simplistic mindset to serve what we see be our needs, and we sacrifice one another in pursuit of it. I mean, the you know, and and the the level of almost human sacrifice that has gone into these types of decisions is, is not a small thing. And I include in that, by the way, the Arabs who, who you managed to include in what is, in my eyes, essentially a, a Jewish story, but you, you managed to include their voice in there, I think, in a very uh, powerful and sensitive fashion, which is a, an important piece. So, so the message, what you want people to, to take, and it's really almost structural beyond even the, the narrative, which is that if you want to grow and change, you need to be able to inhabit other people's perspectives. Yeah. Um, and, and so then I would ask the parallel question is, what do you see as the enduring historical message of the disengagement? I think, I mean, I, if, as the person who wrote this book, I would, I would say it would be that. Um, I, and I don't know, I, I, I would not, 
you know, claim to really understand what the full implications were and how it has affected us um, in terms of politics and those great things, you know, sure. I, I think we all kind of have our own ideas about how it might have been. And I think that a lot of people who were pro kind of became anti, you know, just sort of in, as you said, 2020 uh, hindsight. Um, well, know. they say that Ariel Sharon had a stroke right when the first rocket landed on his negative ranch and he realized that actually perhaps he'd been wrong. Yeah. yeah, realizing that you're wrong is, it's also kind of a trauma. Oh, yeah. And I think that's why it's so hard. And I think that the reason people lack empathy and sympathy for each other is a sort of self-protective measure against the traumatic experience of realizing that you're wrong. I agree. I think that, that you know, I, one of my watchwords in life is, forced to choose between the impossible and the unacceptable, most people will choose the impossible. Because the unacceptable means you actually have to review everything you've done and, and the premises on which they were built. And like you said, you have to on some level accept the fact that you were wrong. And that involves such a deep analysis of self and, and, uh, and a willingness to change and grow that many of us are not willing and perhaps even capable of doing it. And yet here we are 15 years later, thank God the, the nation of Israel is strong, the fears that I remember having that you expressed of like true civil war and in a rift which can't be healed haven't been realized. At the same time, um, I feel like on some level we're still in suspended animation around many of the issues that disengagement raised. Right? What does it mean to be a people on our land? How do we find a right relationship with the non-Jews of our land? Right? And ultimately, what's the vision? What are we trying to build in a way in which that all these different voices that you wove so beautifully together into the novel can come together and not tell the same story in a simplistic sort of like, you know, 19th century linear novel fashion, but tell the same story in the way that you so powerfully presented it, which is that every story has many voices and that you wouldn't want to live in a world in which everybody's voice was the same as yours, because not only would that be boring, it would limit the richness of the world to the extent that um, I shudder to think of what would be. So um, thank you so much for spending this time with me. Is there anything else you want your readers and folks, you got to read the book in a moment. We'll tell you how to get it. Is there anything else you want your readers to think about something you want them to know or just a message you want to send to the folks that are listening now? I think the way the book is designed, I kind of joke about this with people that feel I designed it in a way that is meant to make everyone just a little bit uncomfortable across all the religious and political spectrum, hmm. um, including myself. Some of the perspectives were not easy for me to write. They were, they, I had characters who were saying things that I would never say, but that I think there is value in that discomfort and in learning to sit with it. And I think that the book kind of invites you inside these perspectives that are so different from yours to kind of show you, look, they're still human. They still have feelings. They still have experiences that, that you probably identify with. And, and it's worth remembering, especially when you're engaging in a, in a heated discussion or a debate with someone to remember that they are also human. They also have those experiences. And I think that, really in politics today we see it all the time that people just 
they 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 want to villainize the other side they want to demonize them they want to not really think of them as being human because that challenges them so i hear in this a request which is that people should learn to hold the discomfort in order not to lose sight of the humanity of the person on the other side of the argument yes you know judge other people favorably and don't rush to categorize people and pigeonhole them and stick them in a, you know, this guy is like this and this guy is like that. And it, it definitely happens to me as someone who kind of falls between the lines in a lot of different ways um, that I surprise people. You know, they look at me, they see a woman who looks, you know, I'm religious and I, and I look like a settler. But, you know, I, I wrote this book that also has Arab perspectives in it. And I am, I'm a black belt in karate and a self-defense instructor. They're like, what? <laughs> That's a curveball that most people don't see coming. So amazing. Thank you, Daniela, for spending so much time with me and for sharing both personally and about the book. People want to read the book. How should they go about getting it? it it's available wherever books are sold online. Mm -hmm. um, so Amazon, Book Depository ships free to Israel and all over the world. Yep. Um, you could also order directly from my publisher or from the distributor. And your website is? My website is daniela-levy.com. That's Daniela with two L's and at Levy with a Y. And if people want to be in touch with you, how should they go about it? What's the best way? Uh, they can email me um, through the website or daniela at daniela-levy.com. Excellent. And folks always know that they can reach me on Facebook. That's Rob Mike Foy. You can check out the rest of the Jewish story. We finished season three, folks, taking a break. Going to start season four. Not so soon, I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm just enjoying the summer energy, but it'll come in a few weeks. Um, and that's at www.thejewishstory.co. Um, I want to thank Pardes Institute. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network. I want to thank everybody who gives their hard-earned money and helps make the show happen and keep it free, widely available. I want to invite you to join them. If you're interested in hearing season four, put your money where your ears are, people. And go right now to jewishstory.co. You'll see a button in the upper right-hand corner. You can click on it, give a little bit of per podcast support, or you can be in touch with me directly, robmikeboyer at gmail.com, and I'll tell you how you can get a sh dedicate a show to your loved ones here in the world today or in the memory of those who've gone on. As always, I want to thank everybody for listening, and this is Rob Mike Boyer from The Jewish Story. Thank you for downloading The Jewish Story by Rob Mike Foyer. All seasons of this podcast series are available for download at elmod.pardes.org. If you enjoyed what you just listened to, please give us a five-star review at iTunes or wherever you download your podcast today. We appreciate your feedback and look forward to having you listen to more by visiting elmod.pardes.org.